capacity building for us means to start with, we assist countries in improving their criminal law, mm -hmm. to, to review their draft laws, or if they have laws already, to improve them. And here we use the Budapest Convention as a sort of the reference standard. So we see it have to criminalize illegal access, data system interference, and that sort of things. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monnier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Alexander Seeger, head of Cybercrime Division at the Council of Europe, which plays a critical role in shaping international policy and norms. They're also a very close partner of Team Cymru. They are our co-hosts for our annual conference of the underground economy. They have a very beautiful building, by the way. We were sad to not be able to get to go there this year due to the remodeling, but we're looking forward to next year. But Alexander, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure to be here. So, Alexander, what we like to start with typically is a little bit of understanding of our guest's background, kind of where you started, what you did along the way, and how you got to where you're at and what you're doing now. Thanks. I'm at the Council of Europe. I'm right now in Strasbourg in, in France. And at the Council of Europe, I'm responsible for everything related to cybercrime. So in Strasbourg, I'm responsible for the Cybercrime Convention Committee, which is the parties to the Budapest Convention. And in Bucharest, in Romania, I'm running a cybercrime program office from where we do global capacity building. And how I got here, interestingly enough, uh, 35 years ago, my first international job with the United Nations in, in, in Vienna, I, I set out to computerize, to introduce computers, for people to use computers in what is now the UN Office on Drugs and Crime. Then after about two years, I got horribly bored with the topic, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> It was not my thing, so I went to Laos, to Southeast Asia, to uh, deal with narcotics, with control of opium production and heroin trafficking and that sort of things. But I still believe I'm probably the first person ever to end up on an opium field with a laptop. <laughs> I mean, we counted, uh, we counted opium poppies. And then 10 years later, I joined the Council of Europe in Strasbourg, where I dealt with corruption, organized crime, money laundering and that sort of things. Cybercrime was one of the topics. But ultimately, because nobody else wanted to deal with it, I got stuck with it. And so for the past 12 years, I have full responsibility now for cybercrime matters at the Council of Europe. Very interesting. So you mentioned capacity building, and it's a term that I think a lot of people hear, you know, in particular when they're engaged with organizations like the Council of Europe, you know, the European Union, people like that. You often hear this term. If you could, for the listeners, just for people who maybe aren't familiar, what does capacity building, what does that equate to in kind of layman's terms? To start with it, I have to say that we deal with cybercrime and electronic evidence issues as matters of criminal justice, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that the right laws are in place so that cybercrime is defined as offenses or the conduct that involves cybercrime in the criminal codes defined as offenses that law enforcement has the power to investigate and secure electronic evidence that they can cooperate with their counterparts in other countries, right? So that's basically that. So capacity building for us means to start with, we assist countries in improving their criminal law, mm -hmm. you know, to review their draft laws, or if they have laws already to improve them. And here we use the Budapest Convention as a sort of the reference standard. So we see it have to criminalize illegal access, data system interference, and that sort of things. 
Do they have the powers to order the preservation of data, to search these computer systems and so on? So that's on the legislative side. If they have legislation or once legislation is there, we then have to make sure that everyone along the criminal justice chain is, is trained. That is for the first responders coming to the crime scene. And since we deal with cybercrime and electronic evidence, that means everyone, every police officer sooner or later comes to a crime scene and there's a computer running. They need to know what to do. Mm -hmm. And then everyone up the chains, up to the specialists dealing with computer forensics and that sort of stuff. And then the same or similar for prosecutors and judges. And they may be more averse to technology. They may be have some apprehensions. They may be scared of technologies. And here we have the same problem that any prosecutor, any judge may not necessarily deal with cybercrime, but with cases where there is evidence on a computer system, where they have to check, is this admissible in court? How should it be treated? Uh, can we trust this evidence? Has the chain of custody been respected and that sort of things, which means we have to figure out a way to train or to put systems in place that eventually all judges and prosecutors are trained. So for that, we work with whatever training is, traditional academies, traditional training institutions, for example, where we train judges, we develop with them uh, modules, course modules, and we make sure, we want to make sure that these become part of the regular curriculum of such training academies, so that eventually anyone who becomes a judge or who is already a judge will eventually be trained, at least in the basics, and some of them also in more advanced skills. So that's just some examples here. Yeah, perfect. No, thank you for the background. You know, like I said, I think a lot of people hear that term, but the context of it sometimes I think is tricky for people to really understand, you know, what that looks like. So Alexander, give us an idea, you know, what's the day-to-day -day look like in your role at COE? And given, you know, the world's a changing place in particular in international relations and things like that, how is that kind of factoring in and what parts of your day-to-day -day are the most exciting. Every day is hyper exciting, which is, of course, also a challenge in itself. But day to day is a bit difficult to say. But let me just give you a month, you know, a typical month of my work. So, about a month ago, I was in New York where there was negotiations of United Nations Treaty on probably cybercrime, but the term is not yet clear, uh, a process initiated by Russia that is now underway. In between, while I was in New York, I arranged our contribution to the Tim Comrie event in Prague, the underground economy. A pleasure as always, although I couldn't make it for that myself, but next year you will all come back to Strasbourg. So absolutely. We'll be there. <laughs> After New York, I went to Korea where I participated in a conference and held bilateral meetings with different government agencies about progress towards the Budapest Convention to exceed to the Budapest Convention. From there, I went to Malaysia, where we reviewed the current domestic legislation to figure out what needs to be done, what needs to be reformed in order to, to join uh, the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime. We also had a very interesting meeting with service providers because they also wanted to know what does it mean if Malaysia were to join the convention? What does it mean? What are the obligations for us as service providers in that respect? It was highly interesting. From Malaysia, I went to Bucharest to run the Cybercrime Program Office, to work on the design of new programs uh, to start soon. And right now back, I'm in Strasbourg again, where we do an evaluation. We work on an ongoing evaluation of the implementation of the Budapest Convention by the parties. We are analyzing how did parties implement the search and seizure provisions of that convention. And are there gaps somewhere in some countries? Can countries learn from each other how to improve search and seizure of computer data and systems? So that's also going on. 
And of course, a continuous topic for the past more than one and a half years is cooperation with Ukraine. How can we help Ukraine to make better use of electronic evidence when it comes to accountability for war crimes by Russia? So this is, in a way, what I've been doing over the last month. Mm -hmm. The next month will maybe feature different continents. Sure. So very, very diverse, it sounds like, sets of tasks. You know, one part is new stuff. One part is kind of bringing in new people to existing stuff. What kind of peers, like, so for example, you go to Malaysia, right? What type of people are you cooperating with on their side? Like, are they bringing you purely policy people or are they operators people? Are they law enforcement? Like, how would you classify the types of folks? If you take Malaysia, but in Korea, it was similar. And next week, when I go to Albania, it will also be maybe slightly different compositions, maybe different agencies in the lead. But in Malaysia, it's the National Cybersecurity Agency that is in the lead. Mm-hmm. They organized these meetings. There was the Attorney General's Chambers was there, so the prosecutors. There was the law enforcement people were there. There was the Malaysian Communication and Multimedia Commission that was there. And then in a separate meeting, in addition to all of them, also, I think about 15, 20 representatives of, of major service providers from Malaysia. So that's the type of people we'll deal with. Okay. In Korea, there was also the Korean National Police. There was the Supreme Prosecutor's Office. Ministry of Justice, and so on. So when you go and meet with these people and you're, you know, bringing these ideas forward and you're saying, you know, hey, this is the convention, these are the conditions, things like that. How is that received by them? Like, I think a lot of people don't realize the disparity between global law, in particular around cybercrime. In fact, there are places where it's not illegal at all because there's no physical aspect to it. So it somehow it falls into some, you know, gray area. But tell us how well-received are these things? How big are the gaps between countries' existing laws? And like, are there big deltas between what we consider to be a big deal versus other countries? Or are these all just misconceptions that folks have? But I would imagine it's not so easy. We uh, follow legislative developments, legal frameworks. We follow what's happening around the world for many years now, for 10, 12 years. So we keep a track of it. We have a database of 193 United Nations member states, and then there's some other countries that are not member states of the UN or they're not fully independent or not recognized. So we have a fairly good grasp of what's happening around the world. And in our survey that we did, the last one dates from the beginning of this year, from January, we concluded that about 127 states had offenses defined similar to those in the Budapest Convention. So in a way, on the offenses, on the material, on the substantive criminal law, they could join the Budapest Convention from that perspective. They may have also other laws, other provisions in the laws that are, go beyond it. And some of them may also be problematic, you know, have freedom of speech implications and so, you know, false news and that sort of things. Mm-hmm. But uh, the 10 offenses listed in the convention are there in, or well, in the beginning of the 127 countries, now there are some more. On the procedural powers, which are more tricky to implement, you know, whenever you want to increase the powers of law enforcement, parliaments are up in arms, civil society is, is protesting, the internet strip is writing, <laughs> in a way, then still have about 100 countries. So we see a move in a certain direction around what about this, around the standards of the Budapest Convention. So the main issue is when it, then you go into details, you know, the problem of data retention, where some countries have which is contested in the European Union and many other countries versus data preservation, you know, where you have targeted data that should be preserved. Uh, what is the role of service providers when it comes to interception? You know, is law enforcement doing it alone? 
sometimes difficult. To what extent do they rely on service providers? How do service providers deal with it? You know, with customer notification of that sort of interference and so on. So it's more in the details of these uh, complex issues. And then at the end, it's uh, it's a question of capacities. You have some countries with wonderful laws. They're beautiful, the laws, but there's zero capacity to apply them. There's no judge trained, no prosecutor trained, no cybercrime unit there, no, no capabilities for computer forensics, nothing. So it's more on the, the primary challenge is really, I find on the capacity building side and not so much on the offensive side, mm-hmm. except so those problems of defamation, false news, misinformation, you know, which then has other ramifications. Mm-hmm. So in the capacity aspect, how do you go about bringing this knowledge forward to these people? Because they're, you know, we have a term, you know, where the rubber meets the road, right? They're actually, like you said, it doesn't matter what the law says if you don't have anyone who can actually apply it. How do you go about making that happen? Are they purely technical seminars? Are they, give us some idea how that works. It's multiple sets of activities that we make available. Some of it can be fairly down to earth, you know, whatever. Preparing the specifications for a computer forensic laboratory, you know, very down to earth, very specific, or doing very specific targeted training courses for some, or even funding some experts to obtain a master's degree in cybercrime investigations, computer forensics, you know, whatever. But what is in addition to that is important that we provide opportunities for experts, because all of them are experts or are about to become experts, but some of them have at least some expertise, most of them have at least some expertise to meet other people, to meet other experts, to share experience, like in the underground economy, you know, uh, meetings, which, uh, uh, which we already mentioned. We also organize whatever, the Octopus Conference, which is maybe more at the policy level. Mm-hmm. We also have 130 countries uh, meeting, you know, every one and a half, two years and so on. And we have, I don't know, we're supporting like 400 activities a year, you know, of that nature around the world. So some, again, again, some very targeted ones, some where we then say, okay, here we work with a police training academy or with a traditional training academy to integrate these topics into their curricula so that it becomes a regular feature and not us to go in for a drive-by training and so on. So anything. We are very pragmatic. We are the most pragmatic organization in the world. I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's that's good. <laughs> um, so... When you think about, you know, the execution piece, right? So you've got the laws in place, you've got the people who are out enforcing them. There is then that kind of follow-on step typically, and I imagine this is true in a lot of countries where there's not just a magistrate who makes a decision, right? But there's some level of like a jury, you know, you have to go and convince peers. I mean, I I think that's a fairly common legal system around the world. So what's the long-term support for these programs look like? So like, for example, do you guys provide assistance in helping these countries that are new to these concepts find like expert witnesses so that they can help see uh, prosecution through to the end, things like that? We normally don't get involved in a specific investigation or prosecution, right? So if there's a court case going on, we cannot really get involved unless there is an attack and then they say, okay, look, we have right now a, a ransomware attack or something. And we desperately need to reach out to a person in country X, you know, can you link us up? We link them up, but then we stay out, you know, we cannot get involved in it. But one of the topics here, when you talk about expert witnesses that came up frequently was that some poorer or some more isolated countries, you know, typically Pacific Island states, you know, 
or poorer countries in, in Africa that cannot afford to fly in a Team Cymru expert or a Microsoft expert or whatever expert, you know, to mm -hmm. to provide an expert. Basis. This has come on quite frequently. Then the country said, what shall we do? We cannot fund it. So we have now this new second protocol to the Budapest Convention on Enhanced Cooperation and Disclosure of Electronic Evidence. And one of the features we built in is video conferencing as a legal tool to listen to and have hearings for and, uh, and statements by witnesses in court. So now a Pacific Island state doesn't have to fly in somebody from New Zealand or Australia, but they can, with that protocol, they can also do it. It's legitimate, it's legal, it, it's admissible. Mm -hmm. They can also then uh, listen to uh, use our video conferencing for witnesses or experts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's I just an example, which has a, it's not a particular case now, but it will have long-term ramifications, makes it much, much easier for these countries. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I can only imagine, you know, where you have a society, like you described, you know, they have less available money, right? So technology as a result is probably less permeated into their life, right? And that means it's kind of even more magic than it is to the magic that everybody who even, because like people who walk around with phones in their pockets every day that are basically a, you know, 1999 computer in capability, um, they don't, don't even know how it works, you know? Don't underestimate how people uh, accept technology, you know? <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, then, I mean, that's true. If I was some years ago in, in Tanzania and uh, discussed again about, you know, law and this and that, and then one of them used the phone and said, my mother needs a cow, you know, she lives at the other end of, of Tanzania on the border, you know, just below the Kilimanjaro. She needs to buy a cow and I pay now with Mpensa, you know, with, with uh, <laughs> yeah. mobile money yeah. for the cow um, over there. So uh, the technology is there. Yeah, but what is what is not necessarily there is okay. Tanzania has made some progress in this case on the legal framework, but uh, I had a discussion the other week with them. Also, I was there also in near the Kilimanjaro actually. Okay, uh, <laughs> to discuss with them uh, what to do. They need the legal framework and they need the capacities to deal with it. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. The technology is there, and, and people embrace it. So you mentioned earlier the treaty adjustments that the Russian Federation has proposed. Presumably there are political challenges that not just, you know, typical legal challenges, but what other kind of challenges? And if you could even elaborate some on their proposed changes to the treaty, you know, what challenges are presented from those specifically, but what other challenges are there affecting cooperation related to cybercrime globally? Well, when we talk about the Russian proposal, it's part of an information control strategy, you know, which actually was already put in place in September 2000, you know, a few years into Putin's first presidency. And then ever since they've tried to put this at the United Nations level, you know, where, where governments can control what is happening in, in cyberspace online, to have governmental control over internet governance and that sort of, that sort of thing. And then eventually in 2019, they succeeded in a, in a contested vote to have this process at the United Nations start. And then COVID hit, and then uh, it only started actually um, on the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. On the 24th of February last year, the first session started of this treaty process. And here we see this problem all the way through. It is not really about their proposal. It's not really about dealing with offenses against them by means of computer systems or obtain electronic obtain and share electronic evidence. It's really about speech issues, information control issues, whatever, um, extremism related offenses, about dissemination of false news, that sort of things. After six sessions, 
The last one was completed in 1st of September this year. They repeated in the last session, they repeated uh, all of their proposals. So it was clear from earlier once that there is no consensus on their proposals. So what it seems to lead to is, I'm afraid of that, that uh, Russia and allies will, will block the process and have it fail because they cannot get what they want. The majority of states in the room and other stakeholders want a lighter version of the Budapest Convention. You know, the, the similar same type of fences, same type of procedural powers, minus this and that. And that could find a consensus, but right now everything seems very contested. We'll see what happens in the last session in, in February 2024 of where this leads to. In terms of the more global, longer-term challenges that I can see is the eternal problem that you have on the one hand, the tech communities, that understand technology, and on the other hand, and very advanced, you know, constantly innovating, coming up with new things and so on, not understanding sometimes or quite often the limits of, of laws and the rules that criminal justice is under. And on the other hand, the fairly conservative criminal justice system that has difficulties and is also sort of very careful to embrace a technology. And this is where we have to create a bridge, you know, so that the criminal justice community, the judges, the prosecutors, law enforcement, police is a bit more innovative, but judges, prosecutors in particular, ministries of justice also, that they understand better technology. And on the other hand, that also the techies, the technical community, technological community, that they understand also better that not everything that you can do technically is permitted under the law, you know, that sort of thing. So here we have to create better bridges. That's for me a major challenge. And then another one, a last one, but let's not elaborate too much on all these challenges. But another one is that what I've seen increasingly, and it's also part of my day-to-day -day job now to push back on that, is that cybercrime laws include provisions on false news, disinformation, deformation, and so on. So that which have implications on free speech. And then those laws are used against political opponents, against everyone who has a different opinion. And that compromises the fight against cybercrime. That mm -hmm. is highly problematic, apart from the fact that it has an impact on human rights. But it mm -hmm. compromises what we all set out to do. And now the major part of my job is now to push back on that type of developments. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned the disinformation thing. Myself living in the United States, you know, it's a big topic here, you know. One of the things that I think a lot of people overlook, in particular, in our case, we call it a First Amendment issue, right? Because we have a constitution in the United States that has a Bill of Rights associated with it, the first of which is this right to free speech. And I am a huge believer in this. Press typically does also fall under this, right? It's considered protected speech. It's okay to say that. But one of the things that I don't think people realize around this idea is on the internet and in publication, right? There are other aspects to the experience to the person receiving the disinformation that are not present in simple speech. So if someone were to just speak to you, right? Your ears are involved. So say over the telephone or something. But when you move to multimedia situations where your eyes are involved and your ears or you know things like this, if I were to give you a newspaper and off the top of it, it said, you know, say, you know, I don't know, the New York Times or something, right? There is a credibility component to what is written below that that comes with this, right? 
And again, I'm a huge supporter of the idea of free speech. But one of the things that I don't think people understand when they hear the idea that people want to criminalize disinformation, they immediately say, but wait, the First Amendment, you can't, you can't do that. People can say whatever they want. And I don't disagree with the idea that you can say whatever you want. But the problem is, is when you're looking at, in particular, electronic formats and in social media formats, where it's just a blurb, right, is that you can take misinformation and you can prop it up visually with the appearance of legitimacy. And we are accustomed now as a global society to receive news from all kinds of sources, right? And I'm also a huge fan of small press. I'm like, all of these things are critical aspects of democratic culture, democratic society. But what I don't think people have totally come to grasp yet is that the internet in all of its glory has the ability to have misinformation, disinformation delivered to you in a much more believable way than not. And I don't know what a solution would be to kind of remedy this, right? It would have to be something akin to, you know, the First Amendment in the United States, for example, doesn't protect you from, you can't stand up in a movie theater and yell fire if there's not actually a fire. That's illegal. Although free speech aside, you can't do that. And I, what I suspect is, is we're going to have to develop some type of similar concept, like what was the outcome of these words you said and what effort did you go through to frame it, right? Like the person yelling fire, they're yelling fire, right? So they've dressed up their sound to elicit a specific outcome, right? And I think we're going to have a very hard time trying to find where is that balance and how do we measure it to see these things. But yeah. this disinformation thing is going to be significant. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, but it's not going to be democracy and protection of democracy that's going to drive this. It's going to be somebody is eventually going to fake some kind of super damaging financial situation, a run on a bank, a collapse of a Fortune 500 company or something because of misinformation. And that is, I suspect, was suddenly everybody's going to want to figure it out. But it's a very, very tricky subject. I think it's a very, very, like I said, very layered, very complicated thing. What's your gut say as far as people being able to figure this out? It's a highly complex topic. And for example, between Europe and the United States, there are also different views about the First Amendment type of things. You know, I mean, the mm -hmm. Budapest Convention has the first protocol on xenophobia and racism committed by a computer system. It had to be put in a protocol because countries like the United States could not have ratified the Budapest Convention. So the United States will not and will probably never sign that protocol. Right. Fair enough, because in Europe, hate speech, because of also particular history here, is a highly problematic matter. We have to keep in mind that criminal law is the ultimate ratio, right? So there are many other means, many other measures you can take before you resort to criminal law and criminal prosecutions. But if you have criminal law, it tends to be very well-defined, very targeted, and you also need to have the safeguards in place that you cannot go against individuals and arrest them or close down or raid their businesses and so on, even if at the end there is no 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 conviction, right? So you need to have the safeguards in place to prevent that measures are taken in an arbitrary in an arbitrary manner and the law itself, the offense has to be much more clearly defined than what we see in, in many countries right now. So this is one aspect to it. In addition, there are many things I have no answer to. I mean, what what happens if people live in their own bubble? And they only hear and, and listen and see and 
obtain information that they want to hear, you know, and, and, and so on. So it's difficult to take them out. I think one has to support the trusted media. One has to maybe find a way of for vetting of media to say, okay, this is clearly indicated. This is the news. This is whatever. I will not name now any. I don't want to make publicity for a particular type of news platforms and so on. But these are the vetted ones and others, you know, you have to be careful. I mean, it requires a huge amount of, of education and even that it will not fully solve it. So I guess we have to live with it. And in addition to that, uh, now you have the whole problem of artificial intelligence where you may have famous movie stars suddenly appearing in a dental advertisement or whatever. Right. I, I read the other right. day. <laughs> right. That sort of thing. So you don't know anymore what is true and what is what is not true. Yeah. Yeah. At least in the United States, I'm, I'm waiting to see how this, uh, you know, we had this Writers Guild strike and that was one of the big hangups was the AI piece. And I guess the screen actors are, are next. They're contemplating this because of the deep fake aspect and you know, yep. basically you can map somebody's, you know, biometrics and and then have AI just do the acting. It's a very interesting set of stuff that's coming out. I, I forget the guy's name, but the the gentleman who directed the Lord of the Rings trilogies and the follow-on or whatever order they came in. But he was saying that they wanted like the studio that he as a writer that somewhere in the provision they had like wanted like all of his words, regardless of the order they were in. It was some very weird nuance. And it was almost like Hollywood knew down the road that this AI technology was going to be able to do these things. So they wanted to like train AI with his writing style. So not the story, right. but like his actual, the mechanics of the wordsmith yeah. that he does. And he took big issue with it. Obviously, he was a big part of the you know yeah. press relations here, kind of telling the story of the writers for this. Yeah. But I, I imagine the screen folks are even more at risk to this kind of AI application to this, just faking a whole thing. I've seen a couple of clips where, to be honest, if once AI solves kind of the fluidity, and in particular, the facial movements, yeah. Once they perfect this, like, I don't know that I will ever trust video again. It will come down to just our eyes until holograms break that too. But yeah, AI in that space is very tricky. Yeah. So we like to wrap up typically with advice for our podcast listeners so that they can kind of walk away from the podcast with something that they can carry with them. What three pieces of advice would you give to our listeners in particular in relation to understanding international uh, cybercrime and policy? Educate yourself, you know. I mean, this is not just limited to cybercrime, you know. Educate yourself, become aware of it. You know, it goes back to Socrates, you know, <laughs> two and a half thousand years ago. If you know, if you have the knowledge, you will not do bad things because it's against your own interest, you realize that. So that's a philosophical one. On the practical side, any activity I have been doing, there must be thousands of those over the year, I could come up with the same conclusion for all of them when it comes to cybercrime and this type of topic. Cooperate at all levels. Cooperate. Don't stay at home in your own, in front of even in front of you. Cooperate with whoever you can, domestically, globally, across topics, across stakeholders, across organizations. Cooperate. And the last one, and this comes a bit back to the artificial intelligence question, in spite of algorithms and technology and now artificial intelligence, one of the things I have learned over the last 35 years that I've been working internationally, it's individuals, it's people that yes. make a difference. Absolutely. Uh, if you have made the one most wonderful law, the most wonderful high-tech crime unit and so on, 
If you don't have the people, it doesn't work. You can may have a bad law, you may not have the resources, but if you have some great people, champions that take the ball and run with it, mm -hmm. they can make a difference. So I think this is something crucial that each of us, all of you, everyone can make a difference if they want, if they're committed. Absolutely. And thank you for that last one. I'm a huge believer that people is the thing. People are why is why we're here. It's not just how we got here, but it's why we're all here. I'm a huge, huge believer in that. And what a lot of people I think overlook is that it doesn't matter what you know, you could know everything in the world, literally. And if you don't know the people, you won't have opportunity to apply it, what you know. So you have to have people first. You have to have this prerogative. This has to be how you, well, like when you wake up every morning, it has to be other people on your mind and not just your family, you know, not just your children, not just that, but literally how will you interact with people for the day? You know, how will those things come? Because opportunity comes from other people, almost always, either your familiarity with other people and you know what kind of product to give them, but more often it's, you know somebody, they like you, and they give you the chance to apply something. So absolutely, thank you for that. So Alexander, that's all the time we have for today. If there are folks who are interested in kind of following your work, seeing you know where you're at in the world, things like that, uh, do you have social media? Do you have LinkedIn, that type of stuff? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn and that, that works. So I follow it fairly closely. So any message, you can find me there. Okay, perfect. We'll be sure to include a link for that in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you in uh, Strasbourg next summer for Underground Economy. You know, it's one of my favorite restaurants in France is there, uh, the Crocodile. It's uh, uh, fantastic, fantastic food. And they have the actual Crocodile body on display from it's like 18 something. It's like uh, taxidermic hanging on the wall. Uh, and they have the most amazing in the entrance. They have a large mural on the wall, or it's not a mural, it's framed, but it's really, really remarkable, very stunning setting. And their food is absolutely fantastic. Uh, so well, let's, do this. Let's, do the next, let's do that next year. Absolutely. 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 Well, Alexander, thank <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, perfect. So Alexander, thank you so much for coming and we will uh, hopefully be in touch. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.